Hello everybody, how's it going? Welcome back. It is time, once again, for another episode of the Politics and Punk Rock Podcast. I am Andrew for America, and uh, this might be a long one today, people. I'm going to go over a lot of stuff. I'm going to kind of do the news today. I'm going to kind of just current event my way through this podcast. This is episode 43. Uh, It is entitled Crazy Times. And it's uh, the reason why I called it that is because, people, I'm going to illustrate today that it is crazy times that we are living in. (laughs) Um... So I'm going to play a, an assortment of clips. I'm going to cover an assortment of topics today. I'm going to kind of just wing it. And I'll let you know when I'm getting ready to change the subject. And I hope you'll come along with me on this fun little ride today. Uh, okay, so in a previous podcast, I was talking about um, Senator Kennedy from, uh, I think, Louisiana. Uh, questioning Dr. Anthony Fauci about grantees being um, given uh, funding to do research. And they were not supposed to do gain-of-function research, right? We were talking about that uh, previously. Well, I don't know if you've heard, probably a lot of you have heard, as of late, uh, Senator Rand Paul has also been running some very interesting line of questioning by Anthony Fauci. And uh, Anthony Fauci's having a hard time winning the exchange. He's a skilled man. He's good at what he does. But uh, Rand Paul's hitting on some pretty, pretty, uh, you know, I would say consistent themes, consistent points. And the answers that he is getting are not so direct. Um, but I want to start with this. Before I get into that, um, recently, Laura Ingram, uh, Fox News commentator, uh, I don't really watch mainstream media, you guys know that, but I came across this clip, and I want to set this up before I get into the Rand Paul Fauci stuff, um... She had a clip on her show recently where she talks about the Rockefeller report that was done recently, or uh, not recently, I'm sorry, like 10 years ago. Came out 10 years ago. Somebody found this report. I don't know if it was for like CFR report or to the United Nations or, you know, what it was, but there was a Rockefeller report that came out and it discussed the exact scenario of a global pandemic um apparently it was prophesized in this report 10 years ago and a lot of the things that it's it it prophesized and said was going to be one of the plans on the shelf remember I was telling you guys about you know there's a lot of government plans just sitting on a shelf somewhere waiting to be picked up and rolled out as soon as the opportunity shows itself right so take a listen to this. She hits a home run with this. I don't know what's going on on Fox News, but uh, 
boy, did I like this clip. So uh, without further ado, take a listen to this, Laura Ingram uh, on Fox News. Here we go. Far left Rockefeller Foundation helped produce a shockingly prescient report on four possible future scenarios that could play out over the next 15 to 20 years. One of them involved a global pandemic that's remarkably similar to what happened over the last year. During this pandemic, quote, international mobility of both people and goods screeched to a halt. Normally bustling shops and office buildings sat empty for months, devoid of both employees and customers. National leaders around the world imposed airtight rules and restrictions from the mandatory wearing of face masks to body temp checks. Wow, that does sound familiar. 10, 11 years ago. The report went on to detail how the powers that be would never let that imaginary crisis end. Even after the pandemic faded, this more authoritarian control and oversight of citizens and their activities stuck and even intensified. Citizens willingly gave up some of their sovereignty and their privacy to more paternalistic states in exchange for greater safety and stability. This heightened oversight took many forms, biometric IDs for all citizens, tighter regulations of industries whose stability was deemed vital to national interests. Now, despite the Rockefeller report predating this show by many years, none of what was laid out in that report should surprise any Ingram Angle viewers. They want never-ending lockdowns and mandates for everything. The elites want the U.S. trapped in this forever pandemic. How can Americans see this as anything but a naked power grab? The pandemic porn will never end, and they're going to use it to maintain total control over you. Now, we're now in the midst of the next step of the never-ending and ever-changing pandemic. One where the supposed threats are constantly shifting despite all the evidence and the experts will continually debase themselves and their professions to appease their Democrat overlords. And in the end, we're going to end up with more restrictions on our inalienable rights, whether they're government mandated lockdowns or not. Again, the results will be the same. Higher energy prices, higher taxes, more racial polarization, more crime and a lower standard of living. Um, so... I mean, what do you think? Have you uh, recently heard of any examples of people who are beholden to their Democrat overlords? Uh, having people losing faith in them? Losing faith in their words for one reason or another? Do you have any reason to believe that maybe some of these people... Affiliated with the World Health Organization and the NIH. You guys have already, I've already made the case about Bill Gates and about, you know, the, the, the um, whistleblower scientist that used to work with the UN and the World Health Organization. I, I gave you that entire conversation between her and her colleagues that are getting ready to blow the whistle on Bill Gates trying to buy his way into being a nation state on the World Health Organization. And that's facts. This is people, I, I don't know how it is so difficult for some of you people to see this stuff still. I just, I don't, I'm baffled. I'm absolutely baffled. Um, so let's move on. Let's see uh, what she's, Laura is talking about. What is she talking about with all this 
Um, are these people just beholden to their Democrat overlords, or are they actually giving us the facts? Do they have an agenda, or don't they? You be the judge. Uh, take a listen to this. This is uh, Rand Paul asking uh, Dr. Fauci some similar questions as Senator Kennedy did that I played for you in a previous podcast. So here we go. That no scientific studies have shown significant numbers of reinfections of patients previously infected or previously vaccinated. What specific studies do you cite to argue that the public should be wearing masks well into 2022? I'm not sure I understand the connection of what you're saying about masks and reinfection. We're talking about people who have never been infected before. You're and telling everybody to wear a mask, whether they've had an infection or a vaccine. What I'm saying is they have immunity and everybody agrees they have immunity. What studies do you have that people that have had the vaccine yeah. or have had the infection are spreading the infection? If we're not spreading the infection, isn't it just theater? No, it's not. You had the vaccine and you're wearing two masks. Isn't that theater? No, that's not. Here we go again with the theater. Let, let, let's get down to the facts. Okay, the studies that you quote from Crotty and Sete look at in vitro examination of memory immunity, which in their paper they specifically say this does not necessarily pertain to the actual protection. It's in vitro. And what study For, can you point to that shows significant let, reinfection? There are no studies that show just significant let, let me, reinfection. Let me finish the response to your question, if you please. The other thing is that when you talk about reinfection and you don't keep in the concept of variance, that's an entirely different ball game. That's a good reason for a mask. In the South African study conducted by J&J, &J, they found that people who were infected with wild type and were exposed to the variant in South Africa, the 351, it was as if they had never been infected before. They had no protection. So when you talk about reinfection, you've got to make sure you're talking about wild type. I agree with you that you very likely would have protection from wild type for at least six months if point you're infected. The, but we in our country now have variants that are circulating. Significant reinfection. What study shows significant reinfection, hospitalization, and death after either natural infection or the vaccine. It doesn't exist. There is no evidence that there are significant reinfections after vaccine. In fact, I don't think we have a hospitalization in the United States after the two-week period after the second vaccination. Yeah, we don't have a death in the United States. You're not hearing what I'm saying about variants. We're talking about wild-type versus variants. And what, now, proof is there, what proof is there that there are significant reinfections with hospitalizations and death from the variants? None in our country, zero. Well, because we don't have a prevalent of a variant yet. We're having one, can I finish? We're so having one one seven that's becoming more dominant. policy based on conjecture. No, you it, have the it isn't based on conjecture. Variants, so you, some, you want people to wear a mask for another couple years. No. You've been vaccinated and you parade around in two masks for show. No. You can't get it again. There's almost, there's virtually 0% chance you're gonna get it, and yet you're telling people with them that have had the vaccine, who have immunity. You're defying everything we know about immunity by telling people to wear a mask who've been vaccinated. No. Instead, you should be saying, there is no science no. to say we're going to have a problem from the large number of people being vaccinated. You wanna get rid of vaccine hesitancy? 
Tell them they can quit wearing their mask after they get the vaccine. Okay. You want people to get the vaccine? Give them a reward instead of telling them that the nanny state's going to be there for three more years and you got to wear a mask forever. People don't want to hear it. There's no science behind it. Well, let me just state Dr. for the record that masks are not theater. Masks are protective. And we you have ask immunity there, theater. If you already have immunity, you're wearing a mask to give comfort to others. Senator you're Paul, not you're wearing a mask because of like any Dr. sign. Fauci, I, I totally disagree with you. Dr. Fauci, if you could respond so that we could understand the difference between the uh, virus itself and the variants and the reason for a mask. I'm sorry, ma'am, I can't hear you. If you could um, respond to the question so that we could all understand the difference between the vaccine in uh, controlling the wild type versus the variants that are out there and the reason for wearing a mask, I'd appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, yes. First of all, when you have a variant, you have an immunity that you get with convalescent Sarah and the same sort of thing. If I vaccinate you or me against the wild type, you get a certain level of antibody that's specific for a particular viral strain. If there's a circulating variant, you don't necessarily have it. You have some spillover immunity to be sure, but you diminish by anywhere from two to eightfold the protection. So the point I'm saying is that there are variants in now circulating. The point that Senator Paul was making was that if you look at wild type only, there is some clear cut credence to what he's saying. But we are living right now in a situation where we're having a dominance of 117, which was the original UK. We have a very troublesome variant in New York City, a 526. We've got two variants in California, a 427, 429, and we have a number of others. So we're not dealing with a static situation of the same virus. That was the only point I'm making. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> oh my God. People, remember in a previous podcast when I was telling you that language shapes reality? I love this Orwellian term, this double think term, this newspeak term wild type, quote unquote. The term wild type is a misnomer because it suggests that this virus came out of the wild naturally. <laughs> we all know about the lab leak theory now, don't we? Oh, boy. Anyway, so that was uh, Rand Paul talking to Fauci. And now, and, you know, that took place before those emails. Fauci's emails came out and were made public. So here's Rand Paul as a guest on the Laura Ingram show after the fact, talking about exactly that very thing. Here we go. All right. Joining us now is one of the few who questioned Dr. Fauci's expertise and motives as early as we did, Kentucky Senator Rand Paul. Senator, you are now calling for the firing of Anthony Fauci. Uh, what can you do in the Senate to get more answers than the ones that we have from these emails, which are still redacted? 
Well, you know, I think we've had a sea change of opinion. Everybody left of center was saying this was a conspiracy. No way could it have happened in the Wuhan lab. Now even Dr. Fauci is saying that we should investigate it. But the emails paint a disturbing picture, a disturbing picture of Dr. Fauci from the very beginning worrying that he had been funding gain-of-function research. And he knows it to this day but hasn't admitted We have to get uh, Democrat counterparts that will actually use the committee hearings to investigate this. But so far, it's been such a partisan support for Dr. Fauci that he can do no wrong. But really, there's a lot of evidence that he has a great deal of conflict of interest and that if it turns out this virus came from the Wuhan lab, which it looks like it did, that there's a great deal of culpability in that he was a big supporter of the funding. But he also was a big supporter to this day of saying we can trust the Chinese on this. We can trust the Chinese scientists. And I think that's quite naive and really should preclude him from the position that he's in. And referencing the point you just made, Senator, the emails, they show that Fauci was scrambling in those uh, early days of the pandemic to find out the links between the NIH-funded gain-of-function research and COVID. Now, here's how one of his NIH underlings responded to this email about a 2015 gain-of-function study that was co-authored by the Wuhan Institute of Virology's Bat Lady. And he said, the paper you sent me says the experiments were performed before the gain-of-function pause, but have since been reviewed and approved by NIH. Not sure what this means, since Emily is sure that no coronavirus work has gone through the P3 framework. (laughs) Explain that, Senator. Well, Why is that so significant? Well, here, here, here's, Laura, what makes it worse. Two weeks ago in committee hearing, he said they did not fund any gain-of-function <laughs> research. I quoted that specific paper. Right. So the very paper that he puts in the email, he says, oh, my goodness, we need to read this paper because we looks like we are actually funding gain-of-function research, which is where we juice up these viruses, take them from animals, and infect them into humans. He's admitting that to his underling. He's worried about this in February of last year. But only two weeks ago, he tells me, oh, it wasn't gain-of-function research. But in his email, in the subject line, he says, gain-of-function research. He was admitting it to his private underlings seven, eight, nine months ago. I mean, could there be criminal culpability here, given given the repeated... Uh, 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 failures of Dr. Fauci, who is basically in charge of our much of our messaging on this and, and advice on this. Could there be criminal culpability the, here, a, a fraud or ongoing uh, collaboration with the Chinese when when he was making excuses for them? At the very least, there's moral culpability in the research done by the bat scientist in Wuhan. She gives him credit. She lists the exact NIH grant with a 10 numeral disclaimer or ID number listing the money and thanking the NIH for the money. It's clearly gain of function. There are several scientists who are in this field, cellular biologists. They all say that taking a SARS back, a SARS virus and adding an S protein to it to make it infect human cells, that is the very definition of gain of function. It's very dangerous. We shouldn't be doing it here or there. But Dr. Fauci has denied it to this day. But the private emails show that he was acknowledging 
that it was gain of function. Nobody was questioning it. The scientific community needs to look at this because he hides behind this veil of the lab coat that nobody can question him. Yeah, but well, I believe, and by looking at the evidence, that it absolutely was gain of function research, and, and he was funding it. And to this day, he's still saying he would do it again because yeah, he no, trusts no. the Chinese scientists. Yeah. <laughs> well, one of those emails obtained by BuzzFeed Senator was from Peter Doshok of the EcoHealth Alliance. So he was the one pushing this and doing this research. Uh, and that was funded by NIH uh, in Wuhan. So he wrote to Fauci on April 18th, 2020. I just wanted to say a personal thank you for publicly standing up and stating that the scientific evidence supports a natural origin for COVID-19, not a lab release from the Wuhan. The it's unbelievable. Yeah. But here's the thing, Laura. Peter DeZank is not a disinterested party. He's not just looking for the truth. He was the funder of the research in Wuhan. So he has a self-interest in not revealing this because no, if it turns out the lab, the virus came from the lab, that, that's my point too. This is a big deal. So any investigation going forward, it can't include Peter uh, Tony Fauci, can't include Peter DeZank because they were the ones who funded the lab. They have a conflict of interest with coming to the truth. Uh, we want to ask one more, more question, which is about the timing of the lift of the moratorium on this type of research, Senator. In, in January 9th of, of 2017, uh, the NIAD uh, released this uh, statement saying, we have gone through the reviews, basically we have all these recommendations as to why this type of research should be permitted. It was 11 days before Donald Trump is inaugurated. And it's, a, it's a, like a four or five page uh, memorandum. Don't you find that timing to be interesting? Absolutely. So the NIH realized that gain of function was dangerous. They ban it for three years. And then right before Donald Trump becomes president, they allow it again. They start granting exemptions, all approved by Dr. Fauci. The committee's secret. They won't let you know everybody on the committee. But you know Dr. Fauci knows who's on the committee and reviews this stuff. But then they also allowed some of the research in Wuhan not to go before the committee. And when they were asked, why was this not reviewed by this committee on safety? They said, well, it wasn't gain of function research. So they basically defined it out of the purview of the committee that was supposed to be assessing safety and preventing, you know, dangerous experiments from going on. So, yeah, there's there's something rotten in Denmark and somebody needs to get to the bottom of this. But it can't include Tony Fauci investigating himself. It's got to be an independent bipartisan commission. Senator, uh, do you have any faith that a, a bipartisan commission, given the lies that have been uh, have no. put out there, uh, 500,000 dead, and, we can't and people are just looking the other way. Yeah, we can't even get a hearing, but realize what they were studying in that lab they've admitted to was 15 times more deadly than the virus we're dealing with. COVID-19 has about a 1% mortality, and that's a lot of people, but SARS, the one from 2004, has a 15% mortality, and they were taking SARS and juicing it up and making it more infectious to human airway cells. That's a really scary thing to do, particularly for the Chinese communists, who I don't think are the most trustworthy of partners. Yeah, well, and, the, and, par and at least partly funded by the U.S. taxpayers. That is a scandal. Senator, yeah. thank you so much for joining us tonight. I mean, people, how, how, do, you, what, how do you define evidence? When does theory become fact? I mean... 
this stuff is just, it's getting to be so obvious. And, you know, maybe Fauci didn't know. Maybe he's... Maybe he has good reasons to uh, explain his behavior, but <laughs> I think it's pretty clear to anybody with a rational mind who uses logic to see what's going on here. I don't want to say I told you so, people. But, hmm. Crazy! Crazy times we are living in. Uh, so who knows? We'll see. I mean, need I remind you the Bill Gates story I've been telling you guys about? Remember when they said that the inconvenient truth about the damage his vaccines did to the girls in India that were lied to about what? was contained in these, in the words of Bill Gates, you know, genetically modified organisms that we just shoot right into the arms of these little kids. Need I remind you that the inconvenient truth about that taking place in reality also lives at the NIH website. Fauci and this NIH, something to be looked into, people. Fauci's been in that position for a long, long, long time. He's probably been a club member for a long time. And I don't know, he's probably got his hand in SARS, Zika, uh, AIDS, HIV. <laughs> I think he was around back then too. I don't know. Not quite sure. But I think that's true. I can get behind the idea of an independent investigation not involving the two guys that funded the Wuhan lab people. I, <laughs> oh my God. What are we doing? What are we doing? Um, these e Fauci's emails, man. I mean, I can't believe he let that go. And if we really have evidence that proves all this stuff, I mean, is that is that not a smoking gun? You know, what does he say? Like, is there moral and or legal culpability? I mean, I would, I would sure think so. But let's just see. Let's just see how the, the anointed one to sell this story to the American people and to the world, Mr. Anthony Fauci. Let's just see if this man is protected or not. Time will tell. Time will tell if he has to meet, uh, you know, face the music. We'll see. I suppose we'll see, right? Uh, so, yeah, maybe there's a little something about Billy, and there's maybe a little something about Tony. <laughs> uh, this next clip I want to play for you people is... Uh, I, I, I'm, it's crazy. It's crazy times. So this is my boy, Dave Smith. ANCAP, libertarian thinker, pragmatic to the core... The most consistent motherfucker you know that he proclaims himself to be, and I would tend to agree. He's on the Greg Gutfeld show, who I like. Gutfeld's cool. He's 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 got positives and negatives just like everybody else. Just like all of us, right? 
But this is Dave Smith on Gutfeld, boy, and these guys, these guys are starting to get it. I don't know. I'm telling you, I don't know what's going on over at Fox. I'm I'm seriously not regurgitating Fox talking points. I, I swear to God, that's not what I'm doing here. But I, like this stuff is starting to look like a lot of people are starting to agree on what's going on. It's starting to get it's starting to become pretty clear. But anyway, in this clip, Dave Smith talks about this pandemic and how it is, you know, big business loves big government. This crony capitalist revolving door, big business being in bed with big government big club world we are living in. I've been saying it at length, ad nauseum, and I just absolutely love this clip. Take a listen to Dave Smith schooling Gutfeld on his own show, and people, please allow Mr. Dave Smith to school you too. Here we go. 2020 was the best year for big business in the history of the world between the bailouts of taxpayer money that they got and the shutting down of all their competition in midsize and small businesses. And where who would be typically the ones who would stand up against big business? Oh, well, that would be the left. But they're a little bit busy with microaggressions right right now. (laughs) So they can't stand up to the biggest corporate giveaways in human history. Such a good point. Going back to we are switching sides. The right is going to become the left in order to stand up to because right now uh, the left is so sold on the woke culture. Yeah, and they're getting. And here's it all. The whole thing you just need to figure out, right? It's what me and Kat have been telling you for a decade (laughs) that big business loves big government. Yeah. And that to oppose one is to oppose the other. Also, that's the whole game right now. It's collusion between giant corporations and the government. And that's why they're pushing all this woke stuff to distract the rest of us. So that's what we talk about. Well, I think I'm evolving. <laughs> and, you, right. have, you have gotten a lot better. Trump made you better. <laughs> People, I said it in my song, on the shelf, everybody's waking up. We're learning from our own mistakes. <laughs> People are starting to get it. I love it. I can't remember the last time I found found myself agreeing with so much Fox News coverage. <laughs> uh, but, it, it, I mean, it is just, it's becoming very, very painfully obvious. You guys, I'm sure, have seen the Time Magazine uh, article about the, uh, you know, the plan to get Trump out of office. It was a concerted effort. And it was successful. And, you know, I hope you guys are proud of yourself. Now we got Biden in there. (laughs) This guy. This is the guy. This is the guy. Here we go. This is the guy you thought was going to be the better alternative to Donald Trump. (laughs) Oh, my God. Where um, we could work together with Russia, for example... Uh, in, uh, in Libya, we should be opening up the, 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 the passes to be able to go through and provide, uh, provide uh, um, food assistance and economic assi- I mean, vital assistance to uh, a population that's in real trouble. I think I'm going to try very much hard to, uh, it, it is, and by the way, there's places where 
I shouldn't be starting off and negotiating in public here, but let me say it this way. Russia has engaged in activities which are, we believe are contrary to international norms, but they have also um, uh, bitten off some real problems they're going to have trouble chewing on. And for example, the rebuilding of, uh, of, uh, of Syria, of, uh, of Libya, of, you know, this is, they're there. And as long as they're there without the ability to bring about some order in the, in the region, and you can't do that very well without providing for the basic economic needs of people. So I'm hopeful that we can find an accommodation that where we can save the lives of people in, for example, in, uh, in Libya, uh, that, uh, Libya, what? Whiskey tango foxtrot over what the fuck? I I have discovered proof that it does not matter who the president of the United States is. People, <laughs> the same agenda is going to occur, no matter what club club member, be it a Republican or a Democrat, is in office. <laughs> I think Joe Rogan said it's like isn't it like elder abuse what they're doing to Joe, Joe Biden this poor guy uh, Peter Schiff I don't know if you guys know who Peter Schiff is uh, he's the guy that uh, during the Occupy Wall Street walked down to Wall Street with a sign on said I am part of the 1% let's talk trying to have conversations with rational human beings about their cause investor, pretty solid uh, knowledge of the finance world said about this recent G7. Quote, the irony of the G7 leaders meeting in Europe to discuss solving the world's problems is that the biggest problem the world has is too much government. <laughs> Amen, good sir. Couldn't agree more. Instead of agreeing to solve the problem by making our governments smaller, the G7 will compound the problem by making them bigger. Yep. Agree. Uh, I saw someone on Twitter at uh, Crystalline underscore zero two uh, had a funny little thing. Not funny, but I mean, it, this reminds me of something I told you about the difference between what's moral and what's legal. Uh, back in the Morality of the Free Market episode, she says, The Holocaust was legal. People who hid Jews were criminals. Slavery was legal. And the people who freed slaves were criminals. Segregation was legal. And the people who stood up for equality and justice were criminals. Our government and laws aren't a guide to human decency or morality. Agree. Oh, man. Joe Biden, people. Unbelievable. So, this next clip I want to play is <laughs> uh, John Stewart, people. 
on Stephen Colbert talking about lab leak theory. And boy, do I hope that this isn't a work. Boy, do I hope that this isn't Jon Stewart not being genuine because I love this so much. People, take a listen to this. To science. Science has in many ways helped ease uh, the suffering of this pandemic, uh, which was more than likely caused by science. <laughs> so, and that's kind of... Hold on a second. No, 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 no. Listen, listen. I'll, it's I'll, coffee. I wouldn't I'm, do that. To you. I wouldn't for, do that to you. I'm so what, what do you? Takes, but what do you? What, 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 what do you mean by that? Do you mean like well, so this was, perhaps was, there's, there's a chance that this was created in a lab? There's an investigation. A chance. Well, but, so, I, 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 oh my if God. there's evidence, I'd love to hear. It. There's I don't a know. novel respiratory coronavirus overtaking Wuhan, China. What do we do? Oh, you know who we could ask? The Wuhan novel respiratory coronavirus lab. The disease is the same name as the lab. That's just, that's just a little too weird, don't you think? And then they I, ask I, those scientists, they're like, how did this... So wait a minute, you work at the Wuhan Respiratory Coronavirus Lab. How did this happen? And they're like, mm, a pangolin kissed a turtle. <laughs> and you're like, no. I, you, you, the wait, name wait, of your lab, wait. if you look at the name, look at the name, can I, let me see your business card. Show me your business card. Oh, I work at the coronavirus lab in Wuhan. Oh, because there's a coronavirus loose in Wuhan. How did that happen? Maybe a bat flew into the cloaca of a turkey and then it sneezed into my chili and now we all have coronavirus. Like, come on. Okay, wait, okay, a, wait, okay. A, wait a second. Wait a what about this? What about this? Listen to this. Wait a second. All right. John. Oh my God. Oh my God. There's been an outbreak of chocolatey goodness near Hershey, Pennsylvania. What do you think happened? Like, oh, I don't know. Maybe a steam shovel made it with a cocoa bean. Or it's the chocolate factory. Maybe that's it. That could be. That could be. Stephen Colbert felt about that. <laughs> He's such a corporate stooge now. I, I mean, man, that was fantastic. I don't know if that was if that was a, a bit, uh, but man, the mind reels. <laughs> uh, so I want to read this little thing that I found online that I liked. Um, switching gears a little bit here. Moving on. The difference between someone guided by principle and someone driven by bias. And I really like this characterization and I wanted to share it with you. A person who is guided by principle will stand up to his allies and side with his quote-unquote opponents if truth and morality dictates 
it. Think about that. And then conversely, a person who is driven by bias will go to war against reality in order to defend the identity of the herd. And in the spirit of the herd, the idea of the herd, the bewildered herd, I want to play a clip. And this clip is a Chinese woman who claims to come to us from Mao's China. She lived under the rule of Mao in communist China. And she is speaking to, I don't know if it's a city council or a, some type of city government or something. I don't know. I didn't. I don't remember looking at where this took place. I just saw it. And I want to play it for you right now. So this is a woman talking about critical race theory. And she's um, trying to warn us about it. And she uses some examples from her experience living in communist China. And I found it to be quite interesting, so here we go. I've, I've been very alarmed about what's going on in our school. You are now teaching, training our children to be social justice warriors and to loathe our country and our history. Uh, growing up in Mao's China, all this seemed very familiar. The uh, communist regime used the same critical theory to divide people. The only difference is they use class instead of race. During the Cultural Revolution, I witnessed students and teachers again, turn against each other we changed school names to be politically correct. Um, we were taught to denounce our heritage. The Red Guards destroy anything that is not communist. Old uh, statues, books, and anything else. <clears throat> we are also encouraged to report on each other, just like the uh, Student Equity Ambassador Program and the Bias Reporting System. This is indeed the American version of the Chinese communist, the Chinese Cultural Revolution. The critical race theory has its roots in cultural Marxism. It should have no place in our schools. And, you know, I'm sure you've heard this idea of cultural Marxism, critical race theory. Uh, recently, uh, I think Sam Winchester actually posted something about uh, critical race theory being created by white Germans. And I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, and I kind of looked at the comment thread on that post and there were a few very uh, intelligent people having a conversation about uh, W.E. Dubois and some of the other people that uh, are the founders of this critical race theory. And, um, you know, I, I'm, like I said, I have a bachelor in sociology, so I could speak on this just a little bit. I know a little bit about it. And uh, it's blatantly ridiculous. It, it is not bringing us closer together. It's like critical race theory to me is like, breaking down the most minutely important mundane detail of an issue uh, and like exponentially diffusing it while completely missing the point of all the effort you're putting into this quote-unquote theory. Here's my question about critical race theory, people. If it's a theory, what's it trying to prove? 
Dear any proponents of critical race theory, Andrew for America has a question for you. I want to know what critical race theory is trying to prove. Because that's what a theory is, right? A conspiracy theory is a theory that someone devises in pursuit of facts, objective truth, agreed upon reality, based on evidence. Okay? So, in the spirit of that, what is critical race theory trying to prove? I don't get it. And that's why it is, by nature, ridiculous. <laughs> I get it. We have a racist past. Racists exist. Racism exists. Slavery happened. I get it. I get it. We've been over it a million times. I don't know how many times i got to talk about this. But at what, but at what point... Do you realize, you know, Jim Morrison once said, how can a set, how can I set free anyone who doesn't have the guts to stand up alone and declare his own freedom? I think it's a lie. People claim they want to be free. Everybody insists that freedom is what you want. They want the most, the most sacred and precious thing a man can possess. But that's bullshit. People are terrified to be set free. They hold on to their chains. They fight anyone who tries to break those chains. It's their security. Socrates once said, Most people, including ourselves, live in a world of relative ignorance. And, uh, you know, all I know is that I don't know nothing, right? We are even comfortable with that ignorance because it is all we know. When we first start facing truth, the process may be frightening, and many people run back to their old, fake lives. But if you continue to seek truth, you will eventually be able to handle it better. In fact, you will want more. It's true that many people around you now may think you are weird or even a danger to society, but you shouldn't care. Once you've tasted the truth, you won't ever want to go back to being ignorant, unquote. And you know what? I really hope that's the case. People, in the spirit of those two quotes, let's talk about critical race theory. And you tell me if you don't find it absolutely absurd and ridiculous. Was it created by Germans? Was it created by a group of sociologists, socialists? Was it created by this guy Dubois? Let's explore a little bit, shall we? So, first of all, let's talk about the critical race theory. The critical race theory is an academic move movement of civil rights scholars and activists in the United States 
who seek to critically examine the law as it intersects with issues of race and to challenge mainstream liberal approaches to racial justice. Critical race theory examines social, cultural, and legal issues as they relate to race and racism. Okay? Right there, we're already not bringing each other closer together. We're focusing on difference. We're focusing on race. Which, all it is is the different different colors of your skin. Different, different cultural backgrounds. What does focusing on that have... In, how is that more important than focusing on what's best for humans? What's best for all races, colors, creeds, sexual orientation? Not just in this country, but around the world. Why do we have to focus on race? Is there a, criti- is there a critical sex theory? Huh? Is there a critical religion theory? Is there a critical class theory? Is there a critical family theory? Do you see what I'm saying? At what point are you are you taking an idea just a little too far? And then on top of it, you're trying to force change. You're trying to force outcomes that aren't agreed upon and aren't cooperative and aren't voted upon. That sounds like force to me. Sounds like socialism, social structures, societal structures. Right? Critical race theory originated in the mid-1970s. In the mid-1970s. Hilarious. In writings of several American legal scholars, including Derrick Bell, Ellen Freeman, Kimberly Crenshaw, Richard Delgado, Cheryl Harris, Charles R. Lawrence, Marie Matsuda, Patricia J. Williams, etc. It emerged as a movement by the 1980s, reworking theories of critical legal studies with more focus on race. Oh, so we're going to focus on race even more. Cool. Great. Both critical race theory and critical legal studies are rooted in critical theory, which argues that social problems are influenced and created more by societal structures and cultural assumptions, stereotypes, whatever, than by individual and psychological factors. That That is saying that race is more important to decision-making with regard to the human race than individual choice and free will. That is a fucking joke, in my opinion. <laughs> Critical race theory is loosely unified by two common themes. First, that white supremacy with its societal or structural racism exists and maintains power through the law. And second, that transforming the relationship between law and racial power and also achieving racial emancipation and anti-subordination more broadly is possible. Okay, here's my first problem with this. What are you trying to be emancipated from? White white people, whiteness, white supremacy. Do you really think that that many white people are really that bigoted racist? I, I've said it before. I have a hard time believing that the majority of people in this world are at their core racist. Whether it's t- culturally, you know, socially constructed or or biologically innate in your DNA. I, I don't 
get it. I don't understand what what is the purpose of such a focus in the media, in the woke culture, in the progressive movement. And I, I don't understand why we can't appreciate the fact that we live in a country where regardless of your race, you can achieve your wildest dreams. Yeah, maybe it's not as easy for some people as it is for others, but that doesn't mean that people aren't capable of doing it. <laughs> to, to make the argument that, that, that black people are still so oppressed that nobody can climb the social ladder, uh, create, you know, become a capitalist, create an empire for themselves and make millions of dollars. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I'll take Jay-Z's money. I'll take Oprah Winfrey's money. I'll take Dave Chappelle's money. I'll take any professional athlete's money over my income any day of the week. What a joke, people. What a fucking joke. It's pathetic. It's disgusting. It insults my intelligence as an adult. Critical race theory. Progressivism. Identity politics. Woke culture. It's a fucking joke to me. I will fight it until my dying breath. And you know, Chinese women that lived under Mao are trying to tell you the same thing. Hmm. Who do you think's right? Critical race theory has been in existence since 1970. <laughs> Created uh, in a world where it was, it's you know, standard of living significantly better than it was in the past. And I said in a previous podcast, you know, this shit could only be created in a place that has it so good that they have to invent things to be pissed off and outraged about. What a little sniveling, entitled, little bratty attitude. Holier than thou, egomaniacs you people are. It's, it's disgusting. It makes me sick. It makes me sick to my stomach. Um... So here, let's uh, read through some of this. Um, opponents of critical race theory argue that it relies on social constructionism, elevates storytelling over evidence and reason, <laughs> rejects the concepts of truth and merit, and opposes liberal classic liberalism. Uh, I think I agree with that. Uh, let's look at some of their... Uh, I'm just, let's, the common themes. Oh, this is great. The common themes part on uh, Wikipedia for uh, critical race theory is amazing. Uh, here we go. Common themes. Uh, a critique of liberalism. Critical race theory scholars question foundational liberal concepts such as enlightenment rationalism. <laughs> uh, there you lose all credibility with me right there. You're going to reject concepts of the Enlightenment and rationalism. You're done to me. Uh, critical race theory scholars question foundational liberal concepts such as Enlightenment, rationalism, legal equality, and constitutional neutrality and challenge the incrementalist step-by-step -step approach of traditional civil rights discourse. They favor a race-conscious approach to social transformation, critiquing liberal ideas such as affirmative action, colorblindness, role modeling, and merit principle, and an approach that relies more on political 
organizing in contrast to liberalism's reliance on rights-based remedies. You know, there's so many words that you need to know the definitions of in this theory that, like, at what point do you lose track of your point? <laughs> I can't keep up. I can't follow along. Like, you're, 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 they're making statements with all these terms that I don't know the meaning of the terms because they're invented terms by some idiots that invented the terms. Oh, my God. Language shapes reality, people. And if you believe in this, I mean, this is... Pfft. Storytelling, huh? How coincidental. Counter-storytelling and naming one's own reality. <laughs> the use of narrative uh, to illuminate and explore experiences of racial oppression. Brian Brayboy has emphasized the epistem epistemic... Uh, importance of storytelling in indigenous American communities has superseded that of theory and has proposed a tribal critical race theory. So they're denying reality. They're denying epistemology. They're denying that any type of storytelling of by your own account uh, has any merit. <laughs> you can't name your own reality. <laughs> wow. Uh, revisionist interpretations of American civil rights law in progress. Uh, criticism of civil rights scholarship and anti-discrimination law, such as Brown versus Board of Education. Uh, Derek Bell, one of uh, critical race theory founders, argues that civil rights advances for black people coincided with the self-interest of white elites. Uh, I can't completely uh, disagree with that part. Uh, likewise, Mary L. Dubziak performed extensive archival research in the U.S. Department of State and Department of Justice, including the correspondence of U.S. ambassadors abroad and people who coincided with the, uh, I'm sorry, concluded that U.S. civil rights le legislation was not passed because people of color were discriminated against. Rather, it was enacted in order to improve the image of the United States in the eyes of third world countries. Eh, that's a bit of a stretch. Why would we care? with the defense budget we have. <laughs> Come on. Intersectional theory. The, oh my God. The examination of race, sex, class, national origin, sexual orientation, and how their combination or their intersections plays out in various settings. I mean, we are, we are splitting hairs now, people, at this point. <laughs> how the need of a Latina female are different from those of a black male and whose needs are the ones promoted. Oh, yeah, because our needs are so much different, aren't they? Oh. <laughs> uh, still a human being, right? You still need food. You still need water. You still need uh, companionship or social creatures. But if you got problems you got to deal with, iron them out. But don't expect the world to change for you. Standpoint epistemology. The view that a member of a minority has an authority and ability to speak about racism that members of other racial groups do not have and that this can expose the racial neutrality of law as false. People, what are we doing? What are we even talking about anymore at this point? This is a joke. This is this is where I say grow the fuck up and be adults. Unbelievable. Essentialism versus anti-essentialism. Delgado and Stefancic write, scholars who write about these issues are concerned with the appropriate unit for analysis. The You're not... Uh, I can't even speak anymore. Why are we concerned with the unit of analysis? 
uh, do middle and working class African Americans have different interests and needs? Do all oppressed peoples have something in common? Is this a look uh, at the? This is a look at the ways that oppressed groups may share in their oppression, but also this is they're teaching victimhood mentality. Everyone, if you believe in critical race theory, you need to go listen to my pump you up episode. Okay, go take a listen to that. That'll help you out. Uh, oh, structural determinism. Ex- exploration of how the structure of legal thought or culture influences its content. People. <laughs> the judicial system is based on a jury of your peers. Okay? You trying to brainwash people? Or <laughs> I know that, that there has been a very racist history in the United States, people. But what are we doing? None of this stuff is bringing us closer together. Not everybody feels that race is the only ticket in town. This is like the playbook for the race better baiters, the race hustlers, the people out there like, you know, oh man, Thomas Sowell talked about uh, uh, Jesse Jackson, uh, Al Sharpton. I mean, these people that always show up. I mean, you're Ben Crump now. I mean, he's, he's probably doing pretty well for himself. I mean, people, I'm not trying to take anything away from the plight of, you know, a, a, an, an oppressed racial group. Okay? I, I, I empathize. I want us to all live in peace together, side by side, brothers and sisters of the world. One human race. That's what I want. But I'm not going to live in a world where I am forced to believe that this is the way that it is. I don't believe that. I don't believe that this is the way that it is. Uh, The empathetic fallacy. Check this out. Believing that one can change a narrative by offering an alternative narrative in hopes that the listener's empathy will quickly and reliably take over. Are we trying to, to science talk being a little bitch? Is that what this is? Empathy is not enough to change racism as most people are not exposed to many people different from themselves and people mostly seek out information about their own culture and group. That is not true. I'm interested in cultures of everywhere in the world. I want to go down to South America. I want to explore Machu Picchu. I want to get a look at ancient Incan culture. I want to go to the Mayan temples. I want to go to everywhere in Africa, study the different tribes. And I want to go to, uh, maybe not Libya, but it'd be interesting to go to the Sahara, maybe to Egypt. I'm interested in more than just my own racial group and my own culture. How can you people listen to and believe this shit? And then they go on a whole thing about white privilege, institutional racism, and they talk about this guy Dubois. I want to talk about Dubois because... Apparently, this guy gets a lot of the blame for the creation of this philosophy. So let's learn about Dubois, shall we? Uh, William Edward Burkhart Dubois. An American sociologist, socialist, historian, (laughs) socialist, awesome, civil rights activist, pan-Africanist, author, writer, editor. Uh, Grew up relatively uh, tolerant and integrated community. And after completing uh, graduate work at the University of Berlin Berlin and Harvard, hmm, 
Uh, he was the first African American to earn a doctorate. He became a professor of history, sociology, economics. Uh, Dubois was one of the founders of National Association of the Advancement of Colored People, NAACP. Uh, okay, so let's uh, moving on. Dubois had risen to national prominence as a leader of the Niagara Movement. Uh, activists who wanted equal rights for blacks. Uh, I don't see a problem with this guy yet. Uh, his supporters opposed the Atlanta Compromise, uh, an agreement crafted by Booker T. Washington, which provided that Southern blacks would work and submit white well, would work and submit to white political rule. Okay, I get it. That's how it was back in the day when uh, the civil rights movement was moving along nicely. Okay, so I don't see a problem with any of this yet. Uh, Dubois insisted on full civil rights and increased political representation. He believed would uh, be brought about by African American. Uh, he believed would be brought about by the African American intellectual elite. <laughs> he, I, I mean, you be the judge. Did that happen? Uh, he referred to this group as the Talented Tenth, a concept under the umbrella of racial uplift, and believed that African Americans needed the chances for advancement education to develop its leadership. Okay, I like this guy so far. What has he done wrong? Uh, let's get to the part where he is talking about critical race theory. Um, okay, here I found this little write-up on it. So, Towards a Philosophy of Race, W.E.B. Dubois and Critical Race. The writings of Dubois are both prolific and vol voluminous. Uh, his contributions to social sciences such as sociology, history, and philosophy were inescapably salient. In particular, the philosophy of race has been cultivated and enriched by the written works of W.E.B. Dubois. His race theory has been studied and applied with numerous branches of philosophy. The contributions of Dubois' philosophy of race to the development of critical race theory is the focus of this discussion. His con uh, contributions consist of an existentialist analysis of the race concept as described through the lived experiences of blackness. Hmm. Existentialist analysis. I actually like that he used that word. Um, a forthright challenge to the American political and social system as a white supremacist poll polity premised upon the subjugation of non-white people. I mean, I know it took place, but I have a hard time believing that everybody thinks the same way. How can you reduce this down, people? How can you believe that all white people are evil and the devil and we all believe and think the same things and we all favor ourselves over others? I don't get it. I don't feel that way. I know a lot of white people that don't feel that way. I've said it before in a previous podcast. The only white people I know that are really racist are the dumbest, most backwood, redneck, no exposure to the real world or cities or culture, uh, you know. And I don't want to be mean about it, but if, if you really think that way, you know, I, I definitely think that it's learned and taught. I don't think we innately hate each other, people. 
And then this goes on to talk about the critical race theory is a burgeoning movement that takes a philosophical approach to challenge uh, traditional legal, social, and cultural establishments in American society. Okay, I don't. I'm not taking anything away from um, African American people fighting for their own plight. I, I. How can anybody have a problem with that? But why can't we work together? Why can't we extend an olive branch? Why do we have to create an entire philosophy that keeps us separate and gets used by the big government and the big business marriage, the crony capitalists, the big club, etc.? The intelligence communities in it now. I mean, people... Uh, I don't want to keep talking about this. Maybe you guys can school me. Um... It just makes me sad when I read about this stuff. It's like a bunch of people that are really upset, and I understand you have plenty of reason to be upset with the with the actions of the past and you know the white man's control over the society in certain respects in certain places. I get it. I get all that. Um, there's a book by Jared Diamond called Guns, Germs, and Steel that I really want to recommend because he talks about a lot of this stuff, about how... You know, white dominance or the idea of white dominance was really just a, a chance occurrence. You know, we discovered metallurgy uh, first in the Nordic and, and European countries that just so happened to be white people. And that means that when we fought in wars, we were winning because we were fighting with swords and steel against people with rocks and sticks. And that's how we, we took over so much, so much of the world. At the time. And then we learned how to, once we got here, we learned how to domesticate plants and animals. And his book goes on and gives uh, in very uh, lengthy detail uh, his research that took place over years and years and years. Where he shows that, you know, it's not that anybody is better because of your race or because of the color of your skin. It just so happens that white people developed metallurgy first and had a military advantage. That's really all it was. Is there a history of white people being white supremacists and thinking that they were the master race? Of course. Obviously, history shows that the mentality is out there. But you cannot get me to believe that it is every single last one of us. I'm sorry. That is fantasy. That is fairy tales. Oh, I got to stop talking about this. Let's move on. Uh, I want to play you guys another clip. Um, in a previous podcast, I told you guys about uh, Richard Werner, who was a asset manager for Bear Stearns, talking about uh, fiat currency and uh, centralized banking and uh, big bubbles and big bursts. And um, I found an article, or an, I'm sorry, an interview rather, recently with a guy named Jim Rogers, who uh, is a famous investor, uh, and he started the Quantum Fund, and I think George Soros is coincidentally involved with the Quantum Fund. And um, Jim Rogers recently gives an interview where he's talking about currency and about this whole big cryptocurrency craze, okay? And... Um, very interesting how his comments line up with stuff I've been talking about and uh, line up with uh, some of the things that Richard Werner talked about when I played you guys. Uh, his little interview with uh, Danielle, uh, what was her name? Martino Booth, I think was her name. 
Uh, so take a listen to this. This one's a little bit long, but very interesting. I call this guy Jim Rogers, the history shows us guy. Because <laughs> he likes to say, uh, say as you're about to see, uh, history shows us X, Y, and Z. Take a listen to this. This is Kitco News coming to you from New York. I'm Michelle McCory. Thank you for watching. My next guest is a legendary investor and best-selling author. Jim Rogers is also the co-founder of the Quantum Fund and the creator of the Rogers International Commodities Index. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. I am delighted to be here, Michelle. I'm a fan of Kitco and you and you. Well, the, the feeling and admiration is mutual, Jim. And as you know, I've had the pleasure of speaking to you in the past when I was with Bloomberg and CGTN. And I recall that you told me that one of your guiding principles is that the main lesson of history is that people don't learn the lessons of history. So, Jim, how do you apply that wise adage to where we are in the current state of the U.S. economy? Well, that's a very good, insightful question. Good. Well done. Um, as you know, the U.S. and other countries are spending gigantic amounts of money and printing gigantic amounts of money. Nothing like this ever happened in world history. World history does show us that this always leads to problems down the road. Michelle, this is a good time to be old because the old people aren't going to have to pay for all of this. It's a bad time to be young. I've got two young daughters. They're inheriting gigantic, gigantic problems, the likes of which the world has never seen. This is not going to be fun for somebody. History is very clear about that. Well, to that point, Jim, many economists have already started to raise warning flags about the ballooning size of the U.S. government's debt. But Fed Chair Jerome Powell is saying it is not a concern in the near term. Powell was speaking at a virtual event hosted by the Economic Club of Washington, and he said that although the government debt was on an unsustainable path, the current level of debt is, in fact, sustainable. Let's take a listen. Over time and in the longer run, the U.S. federal budget is on an unsustainable path, meaning simply that the debt is growing meaningfully faster than the economy, and that's by definition unsustainable over time. It's a different thing to say that the current level of the debt is unsustainable. It's not. The current level of the debt is very sustainable, and there's no question of our ability to service and, and issue that debt for the foreseeable future. Um, I would also say, though, that as a, as a nation, we, we will have to eventually get back to a sustainable path. That is something that is best done in very good times when the economy is at full employment and when taxes are rolling in. This is not the time to prioritize that concern, but it is nonetheless an important concern that I believe we will ultimately have to return to again when the economy is strong. All right. And he did add, though, afterwards that at some point in the future, <laughs> when the economy is in better shape, that then this debt issue would need to be addressed. So what's your take on that, Jim? As I said, Michelle, it's good to be old, <laughs> you know, at some point in the future. Yes, my daughters are going to have to deal with all of this. You know, I mean, that's his job. He has to say things like that. I've been listening to central bank heads for decades. They all are absurd. I mean, there have only been one or two sound central bank heads in, the, in my lifetime. They have government jobs. They want to keep their government jobs. And the way to keep their government jobs is to do things that in the long run are foolish, such as run up debt and print a lot of money. 
All right, so you do not believe that this debt level is sustainable, not even in the near term, as Powell is suggesting. Well, the head of the American Central Bank says it is. The head of the American Treasury says it's okay. Right. She has a couple of fancy Ivy League degrees. He's got a very important post. If you accept what they say, then fine. I happen to have read more history than they have, I guess, or at least I'm not trying to keep a government job. Yeah, well, to your point, uh, we do have unprecedented stimulus by the Fed and other central banks. We've got record deficits. Interest rates are at an all-time low. More and more money is basically being printed for social welfare programs. So, in effect, many are saying that MMT, modern monetary theory, is already a reality, that it's been de facto adopted Although Powell himself has criticized it before and called it, quote, just strong, but it seems like he's playing along. Do you think that the U.S. has, in fact, already embraced modern monetary theory? Well, it's not just the U.S., the U.K., Japan, other countries are doing it. Nobody's saying it out loud that we accept MMT, more money today. But no, it is it is a fact of reality. And as I said, Michelle, it's not good to be young anywhere in the world these days because they're all playing this game none of them have to worry about it because in 20 years they'll all be long gone uh, even in 10 years but somebody's going to pay a terrible price for this at least that's what history shows and uh, history does have a track record of repeating itself jim to your point earlier so when you say somebody's going to have to pay a price for this what do you envision that price looking like well michelle a hundred years ago, the UK was the richest, most powerful country in the world. There was no number two. Uh, and 50 years later, they were bankrupt. Literally, the IMF had to fly into London airport and bail them out. That's how it works. You just spend a lot of money that you don't have. And it, eventually, there comes a time when the market says, we're not going to play this game anymore. And that's what happened to the UK. That's what's happened to everybody in the history of the world. And that's what will happen in the U.S. I doubt if it's going to take 50 years at the rate we're going. Uh, as Mr. Powell says, they're doing a huge, they're huge, doing huge, huge numbers. And everybody's doing, I mean, at the Bank of Japan, he goes to work every day early because he's a good Japanese bureaucrat. He says he's going to print unlimited, that's his word, unlimited amounts of money. And he's doing it. I mean, it's, <laughs> you think it's bad to be a young American, it's bad to be a young Japanese, too. Okay, but let's focus on the fate of young Americans. So basically, you're saying that the dollar's uh, status as the global reserve currency is essentially being jeopardized here. Is that correct? Of course it is, Michelle. There are already countries trying to come up with a competing instrument to the U.S. dollar for political reasons. You know, the international currency is supposed to be a neutral currency. But if you offend Washington, they put sanctions on you and you can't use a dollar. And some countries will say, wait a minute, that's not what that's not how this is supposed to work. So they are looking for a more neutral international currency. We don't have it yet. So political reasons, people are looking for a competitor to the dollars and for economic reasons. As I said, the U.S. is the largest debtor nation in the history of the world, and it's getting better every day, getting worse every day. So, Jim, the argument is made that U.S. doesn't really have a debt problem as long as the rest of the world also has a growing debt problem, that it's all relative and that it's not really a concern because the U.S. is still essentially 
in better shape. I like to use the analogy cleanest shirt in the dirty laundry hamper. Do you think that that is the case? Do you think that that relativity could save the dollar or does it not matter that everybody else is in the same predicament? Well, that is a, a good point that everybody's doing this. As I said, the Bank of Japan prints as fast as it can, but so do the English. Everybody, everybody's doing this. And that's a very good point that all paper money, all currencies are under pressure and that maybe we're all just going to collapse together. Uh, but eventually, the market says, I don't want your money anymore. I don't want your paper money. At least history shows that. Eventually, they're going to use something else. Well, what now, is that something else, Jim? I guess that's what we want to know. What do you predict or think that something else will be? Well, history shows that, uh, you know, silver, gold, uh, people... I'm a peasant, Michelle. All of us peasants know that when something goes wrong, we want some silver in the closet. We want some gold under the bed. Politicians say, ah, forget gold. It's, it's meaningless. Bureaucrats say, well, I'm an old peasant, and all of us old peasants know, okay, fine, but just in case, I'm going to have some silver under the bed. Maybe it'll be something else, but so far, history shows you better have something sound and useful the definition is internationally recognizable easily transportable that the world will accept do you think that perhaps bitcoin meets those criteria and that definition well in my view no and i was i've never bought or sold any cryptocurrencies obviously i wish i had michelle i mean what's crypto <laughs> bitcoins worth sixty thousand dollars or something today i wish i'd bought some of it wish i'd bought anything wish i bought ibm in 1914 etc cetera, etc cetera. uh i doubt it because historically if if bitcoin book or cryptocurrencies become successful most governments will outlaw it because they don't want to lose their monopoly. Every government in the world is working on computer money now, including the U.S. The Chinese are there already. And I cannot imagine that governments are going to say, OK, this is our crypto money or you can use their crypto money. <laughs> that's, not, that's not the way governments work historically. Money is going to be on the computer. It already is in China. In China, you can't take a taxi with money. You got to have the money on your phone. You can't buy ice cream. So it's happening. But I doubt if it's going to be uh, somebody else's money. History shows it will be government money. So you they think like. you, you would argue then that the, the biggest threat to Bitcoin, which is now at over sixty three thousand dollars, is government regulation or government intervention? Yes, if it becomes successful, Michelle, as long as it's a trading vehicle, and I know guys are making lots of money trading it, it's a wonderful trading vehicle, apparently. But if it becomes a currency, which is what the crypto people say they are, and they will be, I cannot imagine that any government or many governments in the world will say, okay, you can use our money or their money. That's not what history shows. All right. Well, we do have, of course, uh, central banks starting to pay attention to cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin and digital currencies around the world, to your point. And Powell is actually putting Bitcoin and gold in the same camp. Let's take a listen to what he had to say about that. We think of them more as crypto assets because crypto, what people call cryptocurrencies, they're really vehicles for speculation. 
no one is using them for payments, for example, like the dollar. What they're using them for is to speculate. It's like, it's a little bit like gold for, you know, for thousands of years, human beings have, have given gold this special value that it doesn't have from an industrial standpoint. But nonetheless, for thousands of years, they've done that. So Bitcoin is much more like that. And the cryptocurrencies are much more like that. They're not, they're not really being uh, actively used as payments. Do you agree with that? Is it like gold? Well, it's or certainly is that just an offense to your sensibilities to put Bitcoin and gold in the same camp? No, of course not. Uh, anything that the world wants to use is fine with me. Uh, but he said the same thing I do. The people are using it as trading vehicles, which is exactly what it is so far. Uh, if it becomes a currency, then something else will change. No, there's no question that what he said about it. it's like, I mean, you cannot go down to the shop and buy bread with gold right now. You cannot go down to the shop and buy bread with Bitcoin either right now. But history would indicate that silver and gold probably have a better future because they're not trying to compete with the dollar or the yen or something else, something like that. You know, historic. Well, you can increasingly uh, use your Bitcoin to buy uh, Teslas and uh, more and more assets as uh, it's becoming uh, more mainstream to use that as a form of payment and to receive it as a salary as well. Uh, but Jim, I want to focus on inflation because, of course, with this unprecedented stimulus, there are a lot of concerns about inflation. Former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers is one of many sounding the alarm over inflation and the overheating economy. Now, Summers is actually saying that the country has embarked on the least responsible macroeconomic policies that the U.S. has had in the last 40 years. How concerned are you about inflation and how do you position yourself accordingly? Well, I know that always in the past, if you print staggering amounts of money and borrow staggering amounts of money, it leads to inflation. It always has. I don't see any reason that it won't this time. I can already see that inflation is happening. Go down to the shop, Michelle. You know, education, uh, insurance, just about everything, entertainment, just about everything. Prices are going up a whole lot. Governments lie about inflation and they have incentive to lie about it. So they do. Uh, no, look out the window. There's inflation, whether we like it or not. And it seems to be getting worse. History shows us that history has been very clear about that. <laughs> uh, so, you know. I just want to play that for you guys, just give you more information about, you know, cryptocurrency is a great idea, but who knows, uh, you know, it might become centralized uh, quicker than you realize if it isn't already. Um, you know, maybe the Rothschilds, Rothschilds really do have uh, a certain amount of the blockchain uh, cornered. Oh, man. Speaking of which... Um, I did see Lex Friedman the other day, uh, tweeted or posted on Facebook, Satoshi Nakamoto should be awarded the Nobel Prize in Economics. <laughs> uh, remember when I told you guys about Satoshi ending up dead in a previous podcast? Yeah, go look that story up. That's homework for you, okay? Um, so yeah, this episode today, I know it seems like I'm kind of jumping all over the place, people. Um, it's called Crazy Times, and it's because these are crazy times we are living in. 
If you're a new listener to the podcast, I'm kind of going over the news today. Um, Some of my common themes are, uh, you know, I'm an anti-two-party system, anti-fiat currency, anti-Leviathan government, uh, pro-constitutionalist, pro-free market, uh, pro uh, more choices and options in this life for the average ordinary person, regardless of race, color, creed, sexual orientation. And I don't see it, I don't see there being a more mature adult, fairer, more moral way of doing things. And today I kind of talked about, um, you know, uh, COVID, Fauci, gain-of-function research. Uh, we're going to see how that all plays out. Did they know about it? Was it created? Um, is lab leak, leak theory a real thing? Are all these reports that are coming out from the Rockefeller Report in the UN and the WHO, uh, Bill Gates prophesizing, making a movie called Pandemic, doing the TED Talks, etc., You really think it was just some chance virus that came out of nowhere, people? I don't know. I find it hard to believe. And I also talked about Dave Smith and how, you know, people are learning. Big business loves big government. The two are in bed together and they are making it very difficult for you and me, the average everyday middle class or lower class person, to get by in this life. And even despite that, though, the part that a lot of people miss is that we still have it better than any civilization in the history of human humankind. <laughs> so maybe a little gratitude, but also, you know, let's work together to solve our problems. But, you know, let's have a sense of scale and priority is all I'm asking. Okay? And then we talked about critical race theory. People are warning us about the communist takeover, the communist subversion. Some people think critical race theory is a part of it. Dubois was a socialist. I've heard enough. Uh, I don't know where the idea of critical race theory being created by white Germans, but if you listen to the, um, um, the Wikipedia uh, post that when I read through all those people that were involved, uh, maybe there's some white Germans in there. Seems like a lot of people were involved in this. I wonder what their vested interest was. Uh, and then I played, you know, John Stewart talking about lab leak theory. Maybe he believes, maybe he doesn't. He sure seemed like he did. <laughs> uh, and then we talked about currency and crypto with Jim Rogers. And the last thing I want to do today, people, <clears throat> is I found a video of these people that have read through the Ghislaine Maxwell, Jeffrey Epstein uh, topic, deposition. And it is quite interesting. She's about as good at answering questions as our friend Mr. Anthony Fauci. <laughs> they're, good at, uh, they're good at deflection. They're good at, uh, you know, um, dodging. Uh, dodge, dip, dive, duck, and dodge. <laughs> the question. And I'm going to kind of play this. And there's a few parts where they they actually 
um, block out the words so you can't hear the word. But I think you'll still get the point. So here we go. This is very interesting. Here's a read-through of the Gillen Maxwell deposition. There's a statement from a 14-year-old saying he paid her $200 and then told her he'd pay her more if she brought him more girls. The younger, the better. We got to look at the 465-page document and... A lot is redacted. But thanks to Slate.com, we were able to break the code in a few places. Virginia Roberts Dufresne was suing her for calling her a liar when she dared to file charges against her and Epstein in 2015. And just to set the tone for you, Virginia Dufresne's lawyer, Sigrid McCauley, asked Ghislaine if she'd ever said to anybody that recruiting other girls to perform massages for Jeffrey Epstein takes the pressure off of you. This is what Ghislaine said about being labeled a recruiter for Epstein. I totally resent and find it disgusting that you use the word recruit. Your implication is repulsive. I'm Amy. And I'm Chris with True Crime Recaps. So I'm curious, how much was Jeffrey Epstein paying Ghislaine? Okay, according to her, in 2001, she was making somewhere between 100000 and 200000 a year. She said she didn't remember exactly how much. But she did admit that there were other perks. He, like, loaned her the money to buy a townhouse. According to Tatler.com, that might be the Upper East Side New York townhouse that she supposedly sold for $15 million? Yeah, nice perk. <laughs> He also gave her several cars and, get this, a helicopter. Virginia said she had dinner with Bill Clinton, Epstein, Ghislaine, and two other underage girls on Epstein's private island, and that Ghislaine flew Clinton there in her helicopter. Now, in the deposition, they asked Ghislaine if she'd ever used that helicopter to fly, insert big redacted name here. And because Slate.com had published that Rosetta Stone for those redactions, we know that big redacted name is Clinton's, just like Virginia said. So here's how Slate cracked the code. I'm reading from the article. The deposition includes a complete alphabetized index of the redacted and unredacted words that appear in the document. You can see in the index that a word that falls alphabetically between clients and clock appears on quite a number of pages. From this, we know that the word starts with the letters CL. The index indicates that this word shows up in the seventh line of page 135. If you go to page 135, you can see that in this instance, the word Clinton has not been redacted. And voila. Well, Ghislaine denied the whole Clinton helicopter thing, and they asked her if she'd ever had dinner with Clinton on Epstein's Island, and she said this. Categorically, definitively, absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, when I was present or any other time that I am aware of was ever on that island, I do not believe he went to that island ever, ever. That is an absolute fabrication and an absolute flat-out lie. Okay, but she did admit that she had been on Epstein's private plane with Bill Clinton. Although, come on, it would be pretty hard not to admit that. According to records found by FoxNews.com, his name appeared on flight manifests almost 26 times. According to flight logs collected by the Daily News and mentioned in this deposition, Ghislaine and Virginia were on that private plane together 23 times. But Ghislaine said she didn't remember if Virginia was ever there or not. And she especially did not remember flying with her to London so Virginia could allegedly be to Prince Andrew. So let's talk about those allegations. 
Using Slate's Rosetta Stone method, we cracked a few places where it appears that Prince Andrew's name was redacted. Ghislaine was asked how long she's known him. A very long time. Did she introduce him to Jeffrey? That would be another of Virginia's lies and the lies you perpetrate. I never introduced Prince Andrew, allegedly, to Jeffrey Epstein any time ever. So just add that to the long list of lies. In her interview with the Daily Beast, Virginia says they flew to Ghislaine's London house in 2001 when she was 17. She says Ghislaine woke her up in the morning and told her, you're going to meet a prince today. She took her shopping and bought her a $5,000 purse, and she was told to do for him what you do for Epstein. And then we come to that picture. After a night out at Tramp Nightclub, Virginia says they all came back to Ghislaine's house where that picture was taken. That was right before she was told to go and have with the prince. What a Disney story. In her interview with the Daily Beast, Virginia described it like this. It went on for a little bit in the bathroom, and then it continued to the bedroom. And he wasn't rude or anything about it. He said, thank you. Great. Here's what Ghislaine had to say about it. I have no idea where this picture was taken. I know what she purports it to be, but I'm not going to say that I do. Although she did admit the house looks familiar. Because it's her house. But then she goes on to say her entire ludicrous and absurd story of what took place in my house is an obvious lie. Oh, why is it such an obvious lie, you might be asking? Because her bathtub is too small for any type of activity whatsoever. The prince denies these allegations and says he was with his daughter at a Pizza Express that night. And then there's that story about a party, a prince, and a puppet. Okay, so if you haven't heard this one yet, it's pretty cringy. Basically, Virginia said Ghislaine and Epstein gave Prince Andrew a puppet that looked like him so he could group the girls with it, including Virginia. And when Ghislaine was asked about it, she, she danced around that question like Patrick Swayze. And finally, she admitted knowing something vague, possibly about a caricature of Prince Andrew maybe being in Epstein's house. But she has no idea where it came from and definitely not what it was for. Speaking of puppets, Virginia has said that Epstein was abusive, but Ghislaine was the puppet master, pulling his strings and running the whole operation. Based on this deposition, Ghislaine dodges questions like a pro. Totally agreed. Now, here's a perfect example of the way she avoided answering questions through the entire deposition. So she was asked, when did you first recruit a female to work for Mr. Epstein? Here's how she answers. First of all, can you please clarify the question? I don't understand what you mean by female. I don't understand what you mean by recruit. Please be more clear and specific about what you are suggesting. That question gets resolved when she admits that Yes, she is a female, but her role for Jeffrey Epstein was basically just human resources starting in 1992. Now let's get into how exactly Virginia Giuffre was recruited. Her lawyer gets the conversation started like this. Did you invite Virginia Giuffre to come to Jeffrey Epstein's home when she was under the age of 18? And there's no way Ghislaine is touching that one. She immediately says... Virginia Roberts held herself out as a masseuse and invited herself to come and give a massage. 
She says it was her job to hire people and Epstein wanted a massage, so she went and found him a masseuse. Who just happened to be 15 and working as a locker room attendant at Mar-a-Lago. Right. I mean... Virginia says she was taking a break and reading a book about massage therapy when Ghislaine spotted her. In an interview with the Daily Beast, she says Ghislaine came up to her and said, I know this older gentleman who's looking for a traveling masseuse. He's super rich. He flies around everywhere. If you want, you can come by for an interview. And then she says her father drove her to the house where Ghislaine brought her into Epstein, who was on the massage table. And in her words... Ghislaine and Epstein exchanged a Cheshire grin, and he nodded with approval. Ghislaine says the whole time Virginia was in the house, she was in the driveway talking to her mother, but her father wasn't there. Now, which version of that story do you believe? According to Ghislaine, the subtitle of this deposition could be, Virginia is a liar. She said it in some way hundreds of times. Here's one example. Virginia lied 100% about absolutely everything that took place in that first meeting. She has lied repeatedly, often, and is just an awful fantasist. She is an absolute liar, and everything she said is a lie, and therefore, everything that stems from that is a lie. So, it sounds like Ghislaine is really regretting the day she recruited Virginia. And not just her. She's accused of recruiting a lot of underage girls to massage Epstein. And to massage their friends. And even to massage Ghislaine herself. In the deposition, she was asked if she'd ever participated in an with a 13-year-old and Epstein. And if she'd ever asked her or any of the other girls how old they were. Or if she actually thought that this 13-year-old looked like she was over 18. And then they asked her this. Does Jeffrey like to have his pinched during encounters? Apparently, there are more than 100 girls just in Florida that can potentially answer that question. So, okay, you're talking about this notorious black book. It was stolen by Epstein's former butler. The information in that book was supposed to be the equivalent of the smoking gun, with names and numbers of the girls Epstein and like, the rich and powerful friends that he them to. The deposition only describes the massive list of girls' names under the heading Florida Massages. When they confronted her with it, Ghislaine just kept calling it the stolen document and refused to answer direct questions. She would only say she didn't know anything about the names on the list, even though the man who stole it says he downloaded it from her computer. According to The Independent, the butler stole the book as insurance to protect him from Epstein. They asked Ghislaine if she'd ever threatened him with this statement. You better watch out and keep your mouth shut with respect to what occurred at Mr. Epstein's home. She denied it, of course, and the book was confiscated by the FBI after he tried to sell it for $50,000. That black book, it wasn't the only piece of evidence that they threw at her. They had 25 exhibits to show her, and one of them was the police report from Epstein's first arrest in 2005. In that one, a 14-year-old and her parents started an investigation with the Palm Beach police. Now, when they finally arrested Epstein, they had testimony from over 30 underage minors telling police that they were engaged in sexual acts during massages. In 2008, Epstein took a deal for minimal charges, and he had to register as a sex offender. It amounted to nothing more than a slap on the wrist. In that police file, there's a statement from a 14-year-old saying he paid her $200 and then told her he'd pay her more if she brought him more girls. 
The younger, the better. Galen's reaction when she was asked if she believed that Epstein's to underage girls was also bizarre. She refused to give a yes or no answer. I mean, she's seen the police report. Obviously, she knew what he was being convicted for at the time, even though she says she didn't. Instead, she just kept saying, Virginia is lying. They even asked her why she stayed close to him when he was in jail for a few months in 2008. And she said this, I'm a very loyal person and Jeffrey was very good to me when my father passed away and I believe that you need to be a good friend in people's hour of need. And I felt that it was a very thoughtful, nice thing for me to do to help in very limited fashion, which was helping if he had any issue with his homes in terms of the staffing issues. And it was very, very minor, but I felt it was thoughtful in somebody's hour of need. What a saint. Virginia says Ghislaine told her the same thing that girl said in the police report. Bring Epstein girls who were as young as possible. He wanted happy little Lolitas, according to the interview she gave the Daily Beast. She denied ever recruiting any underage girls to massage Epstein or anyone else. She, d she did expand on the job opportunity, though. I just thought it was so ridiculous. I had to share. Okay, here's what she said. I was always happy to give career advice to people, and I think that becoming somebody in the healthcare profession, either exercise instructor or nutritionist or professional massage therapist, is an excellent job opportunity. Hourly wages are around seven, eight, or nine dollars, and as a professional healthcare provider, you can earn somewhere between, as we have established, 100 to 200 dollars. And to be able to travel and have a job that pays, that is a wonderful job opportunity. So in the context of advising people for opportunities for work, it is possible that I would have said that they should explore massage therapy as an option. Ghislaine Maxwell, the patron saint of massage therapists everywhere. There were a few off-topic questions that might surprise you. They asked her if she knew if Epstein worked for the CIA, FBI, or Israeli government. She said no. They asked her if she was aware that Jeffrey Epstein has told people that he worked for the government to recover stolen funds. She said no. And they asked if she knew of any friends he had in the FBI, and you guessed it, she said no. It was the last question, though, that really kind of made me want to like stand up and cheer for Virginia's lawyer. She asked Elaine, do you agree that calling a victim a liar when she speaks out about her can cause psychological harm. And how did she answer that? Not great. She said, I would like to say all of the terrible things Virginia Roberts said about me is extremely harmful, and you should turn that around. All the lies she has said and you have backed her on have been extremely damaging to me. So what I can testify to is that somebody who has made these outrageous allegations and who is a serious liar and that I know for a fact is a liar that I can testify is damaging to me. Wow. So Ghislaine ended up settling Virginia's lawsuit in 2017 after a judge looked over the things you just heard and decided that the case should go to trial. So when Epstein was arrested for a second time in July 2019 and in prison only a month later, she went on the run. She secretly bought a mansion in Bradford, New Hampshire. Her phone bill was under the name G Max. She got deliveries to a fake name. And on July 2nd, 2020, the FBI broke through her locked gate and yelled for her to give herself up. 
but she didn't. Instead, she ran into another room to try and hide. And when they broke down the door and arrested her, prosecutors said her efforts to evade detection were so obvious, she even had a cell phone wrapped in tinfoil on a desk. She's been charged with enticement of minors, sex trafficking of children, and perjury. Her trial is scheduled for July 2021. Well, thanks so much for digging into this deposition with us today. See you soon. Bye-bye. Oh, man. Wow. So, Gillen Maxwell, Jeffrey Epstein, that story's crazy. Uh, Buddies with Bill Gates, the Bill Gates story is crazy. The George Soros story is kind of crazy. Um, it is definitely crazy times we are living in, people. This has been episode 43 of the Politics and Punk Rock podcast entitled Crazy Times, part one. And we're going to do two and three coming soon. I love you guys. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.